Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Ezekiel had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asher pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to the starry hosts and worshipped them. He sacrificed his own son in fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the carved sheer pole he had made and put it in the temple, of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them, and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. But the people did not listen. Mansiah led them astray, so they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord said through his servants the prophets, Mansiah, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of the enemies. They will be looted and plundered by all their enemies. They have done evil in my eyes and have aroused my anger from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until this day. The Lord spoke to Mansai and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army of commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Mansai prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Mansiah knew that the Lord is God. But any feelings of new hope and promise aroused by Mansiah's repentance were suppressed when his son Ammon became king following Mansiah's death. Right. Good morning, Christ Church. It is good to be with you this morning. I'm Pastor Andrew, one of the pastors here, and uh, we are traveling through the story together. We continue with this narrative understanding, trying to look at the story of the Bible as a grand God story. And as part of that story, we have been walking through there. There have been some ups and some downs. And uh, just to give you a quick recap of what we've recently kind of covered is that God's people, uh, Jerusalem, Israel, uh, God's people had been split into kind of two groups, a northern group, the northern kingdom, if you remember, and the southern group, the southern kingdom. And out of that northern group and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, there was war and there was friction. And ultimately what was happening 
is that God's people weren't acting or living or believing the way that God desired them to. They were rejecting God and they had started to practice following other gods. And so it's a nasty time. It's a low time in the great God story. And it gets even worse. In fact, last week we saw how the northern half, the northern kingdom, had so upset God and had so chased after other idols, they got into some really bad, wicked, nasty stuff. They were doing sex slaves, and they were doing child sacrifice, and they were doing just some really bad stuff. And God said, enough of that. And the northern kingdom is destroyed by the empire of Assyria. Do you remember that for those of you who were with us last week? That Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom and disperses those people, those Jewish Israel folks, all over their kingdom. And so the northern part, the northern kingdom is no more. All we are left with is the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom does, in fact, resist Assyria. There's a guy by the name of Hezekiah who says, No, I shall resist. We shall resist and trust in the Lord our God. And he does all this great uh, religious reform. And he's a really upstanding, great guy. He would be one who, the Bible says, walks in the ways of his ancestor David. So this is a thumbs-up king. This is a rare thing at this point in the story. And at the end of Hezekiah's narrative, one interesting thing does happen there. He welcomes some foreigners, some envoys, from a a faraway place called Babylon. He welcomes them in and he shows him all the area of Jerusalem and says, Wow, God is so good to us. God has given us all of this wealth and prosperity. Even despite Assyria, our little kingdom of Judah has prospered. And the Babylonians take note and they go home thinking, wow, there's something really great happening over in Jerusalem. Take that, file that away, and remember that because the Babylonians will be back. So that's where we pick up our story is with Hezekiah's son. Hezekiah's son comes into power in that southern kingdom. And unfortunately, while Hezekiah was a great guy and a great king, Manasseh, his son doesn't get the greatest report card. You guys just heard it read there. Good king, not so good king. Yeah, that would be not so good king, right? The Bible says he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking God to great anger. Uh, He starts bringing in false idols actually into the physical temple dedicated to God. Uh, Solomon's temple, if you remember, Solomon built this big temple Manasseh actually brings in other foreign altars and statues and idols and starts leading the people of the south into deeper and deeper idol worship and idol practice. This so angers God, having just given the witness of what happened up north. You would hope that the south would take note, repent, come to the Lord, but instead they are actually doing the same thing the north did chasing after other gods. And so God speaks through a prophet and says, enough is enough. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I'm going to clean this place out. We have got to put an end to this perpetual state of sin and chasing other gods. 
there's a, a phrase out there, or a term out there called enablement. Have you guys heard that term before, to enable someone or enabling? It's kind of like what Einstein talks about when you keep repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. He calls that, like, insanity, right? I mean, he says, it's just crazy. And this is essentially what God is doing with God's people, that he keeps hoping that through the prophets, God's people, Israel, are going to turn back to God. But instead, they keep inviting further destruction. They keep inviting further pain and suffering into their own lives. And so God finally says, I will do so no more. I am bringing a destruction upon my own people, upon the south. And I will wipe that dish clean. I will not listen when they call to me in the time of trouble. When things are bad and they say, oh, forgiveness, I'm so sorry. When they do that again, I will not listen when they call to me in the time of trouble. I will not enable them and their bad behavior any longer. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done these vile deeds. And so despite the glaring testimony of what took place in the north, the south now also is promised destruction. There's a prophet named Jeremiah. He's referred to as the weeping prophet. Because everywhere he goes, he's crying. He's crying because all the things that he's predicting and he's prophesying... It's all bad stuff. It's all destruction and gloom. It's death. And so he weeps. He weeps for his own people as he says, God is bringing the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And the Chaldeans shall return and fight against this city. They shall take it and burn it with fire. The Chaldeans are the same as the Babylonians. Same term, same people. You see, what happens is uh, Assyria... The empire of Assyria, remember how it kind of unravels at the seams? We saw that last week. Assyria, this giant big empire kind of comes apart as soon as it destroys the north. Into that power vacuum steps the Babylonians. And the Babylonians not only swallow up this Syrian empire, but for those of you who remember the green, the big map that had all the green, yeah, Babylon, the Babylonian empire, bigger, worse. More powerful, more destruction. I, I should have thrown a map up there because it's an even bigger and more dominant empire. The Babylonians are seemingly unstoppable. And God says to the prophet Jeremiah, I am bringing the Babylonians against you, and I will use them as my tool to wipe the slate clean. And this is exactly what happens. The Babylonians come, they lay siege to the southern kingdom, and they sack Jerusalem. Destroy it. Burn it to the ground. Ash, dust, and rubble. They pile high the bones of God's people. God's temple, which, which so grounded God's people, the, the temple that Solomon, this great guy in the past, built, the temple destroyed, taken apart, 
brick by brick, stone by stone, torn down. It gets so bad. It says at the time, this is coming out of Second Kings, at the time the servants of the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came up to Jerusalem. They besieged the city. And not only did they destroy the city, leaving it with, with rubble and ruins, death and destruction, but they too, just like the Assyrians, started taking away the Jewish people, ripping them out of their own homeland. He carried away all Jerusalem, all the officials, all the warriors, 10,000 captives, all the artisans and smiths. No one remained except the poorest people in the land. And so what Babylon does is take anyone who's educated, anyone who's influential, anyone who's wealthy, anyone who has a measure of power or influence, they rip them out of their own homeland and bring them to faraway Babylon and make them their slaves. Only the poorest of the poor remain in Jerusalem. God's people His chosen and beloved people who have so readily chased after other gods, who have invited over and over again through their bad behavior and bad decisions, God's wrath and anger. It seems like they finally get it. And they are left with a city in rubble and ash. They are slaves God's people, simply put, are dead. They are no more. I was looking at the preaching calendar, and as I was doing that, I noticed which chapters of the story that I had been assigned. And I remember reading about this one coming up. This is not on the highlight reel of God's people. This is a low point in the story. This is a point where God's people can't seem to see. How could a loving God let this happen? Is is there a way forward? Is there life even after this apparent destruction and death that has so taken a hold of us. For those of you who know your Bibles and have read it, there's a book in the Bible called Job. If you're familiar with the book of Job, it's a very challenging book, very dreary, very depressing. And it is written at the time when they are faced with this question. Of, of when everything goes wrong in life and you are completely overwhelmed and you are sitting in death, what now? Is life even possible when you are surrounded by the bones of your own city? I think there's a popular misunderstanding in our culture when it comes to forgiveness, love, compassion. There seems to be this weird understanding. I don't know where it comes from. But it seems to me that when people talk about forgiveness and love, 
What they're really saying is when somebody forgives you, when somebody loves you, that there are no consequences to whatever you've done. That when you, 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 you are forgiven by someone, everything goes back to normal. Everything is hunky-dory. There's no more pain. There's no more hurt. There's no more problems because you're forgiven and everything's good, right? Wrong. Anyone who has ever been in a position to either give or receive forgiveness, to give or receive love, knows that this is not the case. That there are always consequences. It is not life without the consequences that we have invited in through our decisions. No. The question is, would forgiveness, through forgiveness, if forgiveness happens, can forgiveness make a way forward? Can forgiveness bring life after, in spite of, during the consequences? Forgiveness says there is life possible after death. When I was uh, a bit younger, when I was back, and I still remember this so vividly, when I was in fifth grade, I made a very poor and selfish decision. You ever made one of those? I made a very poor and selfish decision. And as a result of my decision, there were consequences. And these consequences were not mine alone. I actually shared those consequences with my mother. Truth be told, my mom actually had to pay a heavier price. She had to bear the consequence for my decision even more than I did. And as I got together with my mom, as we came together, like the people of Jerusalem, like God's people, I was wondering what every fifth grader wondered upon facing their mother. Is life possible after death? I better know now. (laughs) I'm going to find out. You see, my mother was put in a position because of my decisions where she could either forgive me and make a way forward, still bearing the consequences, still having to deal with the reality that I had invited into our family, still dealing with and having to walk through the pain and the hurt and the frustration that I had caused. And yet, she was faced with that question of, would she, as a result of those pain and suffering moments, would she simply finish our relationship? Would she leave me in death and destruction or forgive me? And allow life in our relationship to happen going forward. I am pleased and humbled to say, though she's not here this morning, I have a good relationship with my mother. (laughs) 
She chose forgiveness. She chose to love me and forgive me and welcome the consequences along with me in our relationship. And life was possible, was made real because of her grace and kindness and love. So too with God. As God's people are looking at the rubble and ruins of their life, as they are trying to deal with the consequences of their actions, as they're trying to deal with the consequences of the one that they are loved by, his wrath and, and his love is so great that he refuses to simply bail them out. They're sitting with their dust and ash, rubble and ruin of their lives, and they ask the question, God, would you forgive us now? Would you heal us and redeem us? God, can you, in your forgiveness, bring life to your dead, broken, hurting people? The answer is found in another prophet, Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet who steps forward at this time. And he speaks a word that God has given his people. It's a famous prophecy that Ezekiel gives, sometimes called the Valley of Dry Bones. You ever hear of this? It's on your half sheet if you want to follow along. It's too long for me to put up on the screen, but I'm just going to read the whole thing for you because it's so good. This is God's response to the question of his dead and broken people. Is life after death possible? Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord came upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were very many lying in the valley, and they were very dry. He said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O oh Lord, God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied 
as I had been commanded. And as I prophesied, suddenly there was a a rattling, a noise, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had begun to cover them. There was still no breath in them. And so he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath. Breathe upon these slain that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them. And they lived. And they stood on their feet. A vast multitude God's people once more. Would you please stand with me? I prophesied and he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and they stood on their feet, a vast multitude. Then he said to me, mortal... These bones are the whole house of Israel, God's chosen people. They say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are cut off completely. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit in you you shall live and I will place you on your own soil then you shall know that I the Lord have spoken and will act says the Lord for us for God's people whether we are Israelites thousands of years ago or whether we are God's people here, now, today. When you and I are faced with ruin and destruction, when we are sitting in our own ash and dust and death, when our bones are very dry, and we ask the question, is life possible even now? God says to you, I will open your graves. You are my people. I love you. I forgive you. And just as I restore Israel, so too I shall restore you. Your promise at this lowest point in the history so far When you come to your lowest point, 
this too is your prophecy. That there is life for you. There is a way forward for you. And it is found in God's love, grace, and compassion. We believe this as a Christian people because Jesus Christ paid the consequence. He has dealt with our consequences and extended love and forgiveness and life to each one of us. And so our brokenness and our death become a testimony to God's future and power to bring life. Please have a seat. As we think about stories, as we think about this great God story, as we think about our own stories, The consequences that we live with, they become the scars in our life. But scars that don't remind us of our failure, of our faults. They are scars that point to God's ability to heal and resurrect. Jesus himself has scars. Did you know that? After his own death, When he comes back to life, risen from the grave, Jesus has scars. Scars from the consequences of others. And those scars actually lead people to faith when they can touch them and feel them and see them. With us too, God both promises to breathe life after death into us. In a very tangible way when we are dead, but in a very real way right now with whatever death and destruction we are facing. And the scars that we bear from those consequences serve to tell the story of how God brings Life. Life to his people, even after their death. Let's close with a word of prayer.